0: If you guys would open in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, you may also want to have a finger in Genesis chapter 3. This morning we begin the Advent season. Christmas is the day of celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. The Advent season is our preparation for that. It is the coming of our Savior on Christmas morning. So we begin our Advent season together this morning. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. And then a little while later, we're going to be in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Now, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I probably listen to too many podcasts. I'm constantly looking for new podcasts and interesting podcasts. And so I was trying something new a few weeks ago, and I was listening to these couple of guys, it was a philosophy podcast. People like me get excited about philosophy podcasts. And I started listening to a couple of their podcasts, and then partway through one of them, the two of them began to mock a Christmas song. And the Christmas song, the language in the song that they were mocking, was about um, telling people about the coming and the birth of Jesus Christ. And they just began to laugh and they began to joke. Why on earth would anyone want to hear that story? Why would we tell that story to anyone? And they end up saying things like, it has absolutely nothing to do with anyone. Ha, 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 laugh, 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 laugh. As I'm listening to that, I'm hearing a couple of things simultaneously. In one ear, my pastor's ear goes, man, that's just blasphemous, the stuff that they're saying. I, I don't think I like this very much. But then my other ear was hearing something else. These two young men who are purported to be philosophers, trying to think about life and all of its meaning, they don't know why Jesus came. Forget the theological reasons why Jesus is born on that first Christmas morning. How about just the historical consequences of the birth of Jesus Christ on that morning? But the idea was being put forward, and it's an idea that actually we hear a lot more and more inside of our culture. What's the point of this? What does this have to do with anything? A few years ago, they began taking more polls about younger people, asking them, what is the Christmas story about? And as the years move on, the younger you get, the less likely you are to actually know that it's a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. We're actually losing our sense, not just of the core of this story, the nativity story, but the reasons for it. The explanation for the birth of Jesus Christ. As we, this Advent season, prepare for Christmas Day, for the coming of Jesus Christ, I want to wrestle with this question. I want to wrestle with these ideas about the birth of Jesus Christ. Why did God do it? Why does it happen at all? What is God fixing with the birth of Jesus Christ? What is God redeeming, putting back together? And if God is fixing something in the birth of Jesus Christ, what was broken in the first place? And if it was broken, can't we just fix it on our own? Does God really need to play that significant a role in our lives today? What is this all about? Well, the more we look at the birth of Jesus Christ, it turns out that the answer to the question, what does the birth of Jesus Christ have to do about anything, is, well, everything, is actually the answer to that question. It turns out that God is doing a lot in the birth of Jesus Christ. We need a lot done for us. And God sends His Son to restore what was broken. The theme for this month, The Weary World Rejoices, it comes from a line out of one of my favorite Christmas hymns. The hymn is, O Holy Night. And the refrain goes like this. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new glorious morn. Fall on your knees, oh, hear the angels' voices, oh, night divine, oh, night when Christ was born. And you're welcome for me not singing that to you. You can can be happy for that later on. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. The world is weary, the world is broken. Christ is born, and it begins to rejoice. The angels sing, and we join in in worship. This is a big deal, the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew chapter 1 tells a very familiar part of the Christmas story. This young lady, Mary, she's pregnant. Joseph, the man that she is engaged to be married to finds out that she's pregnant he he plans to divorce her as the text says quietly an angel appears to him and tells him go ahead and marry this young woman Mary what is in her is of the holy spirit and she's going to give birth to a son and you're going to name him Jesus and what's important about the name is for he will save his people from their sins we need saving from our sins And Jesus entered the world to make that salvation possible for all of us. We need saving from our sins. And I think by the time that we are done this morning, I'm going to show you that every human being believes we need saving from our sins. Hang on to that thought. I really think that's true. Every human being thinks we need saving from what is broken in this world. So let's begin reading in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter one, starting in verse 18. It goes like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and willing, excuse me, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The text says that Mary is young and engaged, and she's found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, this is an utterly unique story. Now, some people critique this story saying, well, it's actually a common kind of birth narrative in the religions around them. This kind of of thing happens a lot. This one is actually stolen from this myth or from that myth. All of that's been debunked. All of those other stories have a different character to them, different um, consequences, different details of those stories. When we talk about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, it is utterly and absolutely unique. She is found to be with child, not by Joseph or any normal human means, but by now the Holy Spirit. So the angel is telling Joseph that what's going on here is completely new and unique. Now the angel had told Mary this, A few weeks ago, maybe even a few months before this moment, the angel actually showed up to Mary in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. This young girl, she describes herself as a virgin. And the angel comes to Mary and says, Look, you're going to conceive and you're going to give birth to a son. And it's going to be the son of the Most High. He is going to be the son of David, as a matter of fact. And God, your father, will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will rule on it forever and ever and ever. It's this beautiful moment. And Mary replies by saying, How on earth can this happen? I'm a virgin. And so the angel says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This birth needs to be unique. This needs to be unique. Not just the act of God to save us from our sins, but it needs to be God himself who comes to save us from our sins. So the child that will be born to you, Mary, won't be normal. This child will be called holy. This child will be the Son of God. So Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, God, the creator of all things, enters this world through blood, sweat, and tears as a human child. And he comes into this world fully God and fully human. And immediately, as we begin to sort of grasp what this story is like, even though it's so familiar to us, we need to remind ourselves of what's going on and why, immediately we're on brand new ground. God is up to something new. Something so significant, so dramatic needs to be done that it can't be done by any human individual, by any human monarchy, by any human institution. God himself has to show up and fix what's wrong. That's how deep this problem, this issue really is. So God sends his son to live, teach, die, and rise again among us in human form to save us from our sins. We think about this text again in the situation that Joseph and Mary are in. Mary, this young woman, she is engaged and she is pregnant. Joseph knows it is not his child. Now, given the social structure of that day, even though they are engaged, it gives the soon-to-be husband, Joseph, the legal and the cultural right to do what the text calls divorcing her. So that's a significant enough relationship, that engagement, that that's how it's treated inside of their culture. But it describes Joseph as a just man. Now, some of your other translations use a different word that expands on that concept a little bit. He's a righteous man. Everything we know about Joseph, which is just a little bit, but everything we know about him, tells us that he is a righteous man in the sense that he wants to do everything in his power to please his God and to live according to his God's world and to, to lead this righteous life. And because this is the character of Joseph, he has the right to divorce Mary, but he decides to do it in such a way that it causes as little pain as possible. So Joseph, the text says, is considering this. Mary's pregnant. I don't understand this. This isn't mine. I have a right to do this, but I'm going to do this as easily as I possibly can. And into that conflict, this angel shows up and begins to talk to Joseph about what's really going on here. So the angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what's happening to her is by the power of the Holy Ghost. And he says, she will bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. You will call him Jesus. So this is God's work. And again, we can't stress enough how unique and incredible this moment is. You know, sometimes there are things that happen inside of our lives where we think, okay, that's one in a million. That sort of thing happens to other people in other places, but all of a sudden it's happening to me. When Joseph hears that what's going on to Mary is of the Holy Spirit, and he should marry her and she's going to give birth to a son, he does not do that calculation. He does not say, well, other people win the lottery, but that doesn't happen to people like me. But I know it happens. There's nothing like that going on in Joseph's brain. What's going on in his brain is, I've never heard of this before. But Joseph's a righteous man. Joseph is a man who is living his faith in God. And so Joseph accepts this as true. And he takes Mary as his wife. And the child is born, and he names the child Jesus. It's absolutely stunning what the characters in this story do. Just in their faith in God and what they hear is actually going on. They name the child Jesus. The text says... Because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus just means God is salvation. That's why his name will be Jesus. So this birth is a really big deal, right? Because Jesus will save his people from their sins. That phrase is a gigantic phrase. So sometimes inside of these common stories, you know, we'll maybe read them. We've probably heard them a little bit later on. We'll read a story in the Advent season that Linus tells us inside of the Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? We hear this stuff over and over again. Sometimes we need to hit the pause button we need to think for a minute. Jesus will save his people from their sins. What does this mean? Well, first of all, you and I need saving. Like a drowning human, like a drowning man, we need saving. If someone is drowning, they've lost every ounce of energy or ability inside of them to reach the surface of the of the surface of the water. The environment around them is way too big and violent and turbulent for them to control, so they continue to drown. They can't control what's inside of them anymore. They can't control what's around them anymore. They need to be saved. We need to be saved like that. Well, oftentimes the next question that comes is this. Well, saved from what? What are we drowning in? What's going wrong? Why do I need saving? Well, the first and most straightforward answer here inside of the text that we're going to spend some time thinking about is that we need saving from our sins. I need saving from my sin, the brokenness that is inside of me, and I want you guys to hear this as well. I need saving from your sin too. Right? You need saving from my sin. What's broken inside of me will end up affecting your life. What's broken inside of you will end up affecting your neighbor's life and my life. And on and on the story goes. We need saving from what's broken inside of us, our sin nature. Being a sinner just simply means that we have walked away from the wisdom of God. We've walked away from the way that God has revealed to us. We've walked away from the law of God. We've begun to rebel against the way of God that God has given us to live. This is what it means to live in sin. God gives us all kinds of good things. And we take those good things and we twist them for our own selfish ends and purposes. We sin when we twist what God gives us and we do it for our own reasons and purposes. Our sins cause a lot of problems. Our sins cause problems between us and God. Our sin separates a relationship that was intended to be intimate. It was intended to be face to face. And a relationship that God created to be like that is now full of division and rebellion and anger. So our sin creates this division between us and God. And our sin also creates division between me and my neighbor, between me and you. So our sin breaks our human relationships as well. The kinds of relationships between us that were intended to be as pure and right and upright and good as possible are now, again, just full of this division and full of this misunderstanding and full of our sin. Sin causes a lot of problems. But Jesus will save his people from their sin. I love this thought about this. It does not say... And Jesus will save his people from the mistakes that God has made. Sometimes when people deal with the biblical text, they say, well, God did this and did this. He made a mistake, and that's why we're in the state that we're in now. So Jesus comes to fix the mistakes that God made. He didn't quite see what was going to happen, but he's going to fix it. The text doesn't say that. The text says Jesus has come to save us from whose sins? Our own sins. God, the perfect, righteous, omnipotent, sovereign Lord of all things has come to save me from what I've done wrong. It's astounding. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Jesus comes to make salvation possible. And then it is offered to whosoever will. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. The death that entered into the world with our original sin is now fixed in Jesus Christ, but shall have everlasting life. It's offered to everyone, but not everyone accepts. Not everyone considers themselves part of his people. We understand when it comes to salvation... That every one of us needs to respond to God's offer. To begin to put our trust in Jesus Christ. Instead of trust in our own ways, we put our faith, our trust in Jesus and who He really and truly is. A passage of Scripture that puts this about as clearly as any other passage of Scripture does is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8. It says this For by grace you have been saved. We're not going to get away from this salvation language, by the way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. She's going to give birth to a son. You're going to name him Jesus. Because he is God's gift to every one of you. He is God's gift, making salvation possible. He's God himself on earth in human form to reconcile broken people to their sovereign, loving creator, God. It is the gift of God. This is what salvation is. Well, if Jesus has come to save us from our sin, and sin has all of these consequences, and sin and brokenness is pervasive in absolutely every human soul, where does this sin come from? What does it do? What kinds of effects does it have? What can we understand about the sin and the brokenness that is within us? I want you guys, if you've got your finger there, to turn now to the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 3. I want to talk about the origin of this. God has created all things in the pinnacle of His creation. He creates man and woman in the image of God. He breathes life into both of them. It's the human being that contains the image of God. God puts now Adam and Eve inside of the Garden of Eden to tend to it, to take care of it. He says, in fact, I want you to multiply, and I want you to fill this garden with more and more and more of you. And God gives them things to do, and they're living in Eden, okay? Now, the text says it is the Garden of Eden. Now, we use that phrase, something is like the Garden of Eden, or something is Edenic, because we think in terms of, well, that means perfect, That means totally and absolutely put together, and and so it was. We even get the image inside of the text that God himself would sometimes come down and he would begin to walk the trails with Adam and Eve and talk to them face to face, this intimate and perfect relationship, all happening the way that God created us, intended us to be, in this garden and with him. As you open up Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now there was this serpent. It's the most crafty of all of the creatures that were inside of the garden. Now, God had given Adam and Eve everything in the garden to tend and take care of and enjoy and eat. But there is one tree in the middle of the garden, and God says, this is the one tree. I don't want you to eat from it. I don't want you to touch it. Because when you do, in that day that you do that, you will die okay so God has given them everything and then one command one no don't do this one thing so the serpent shows up and Eve is close to the tree and the serpent says now did God really say that did he really mean that and Eve repeats what she heard from God and the serpent says that's okay that's not really what's going on God is worried that if you eat from this tree you're going to become like him That's why he doesn't want you eating from that tree. And the text says that Eve looks at the tree and it looks good. The fruit looks good. She thinks, well, if I eat from this fruit, I'll actually gain some wisdom. So Eve grabs that fruit from off of the tree and she eats it. And the text says her husband was next to her, he was nearby. And she eats of the fruit. She hands the fruit to Adam and Adam eats of the fruit. And the very next thing that happens is it says the two of them, their eyes were opened. And what they realized is that they were naked and they became ashamed. The last phrase of chapter 2 says that they were naked and unashamed. The moment this happens, sin enters into the world. And something that had never been the case in their hearts, shame at how they looked, enters in and they begin to craft clothing as quickly as they possibly can. This is absolutely stunning, guys. This is literally in our DNA. God gives really good gifts, but we want to do that one thing that is forbidden to us. It's not just you and me. It's every human soul. It was birthed into us, at this moment, this one moment of rebellion. Now realize this, it wasn't the fruit. The fruit wasn't magic, all right. Most of the paintings, you go look it up, it's, it's some sort of parish-looking thing, right? You learn in Sunday school that they took an apple off of the tree. Probably wasn't an apple. My guess is it was a tomato tree, right? Because Anyway. They take the fruit. Yeah, I'm getting some blowback on that one already. So, Okay. <laughs> The fruit wasn't magic. It wasn't something magic that happened in the fruit. It was an act of rebellion against the command of God. That's what the problem was. You see, they trusted the word of their enemy, and in trusting the word of their enemy, they showed distrust in the word of God. God said, I've given you everything, just don't do this. What is it eventually they do? This. They trust the voice of the enemy, and in doing so, they show distrust in the voice of God. So, Adam and Eve, they actually hide themselves. They've never hidden themselves from each other, from the creatures in the garden, from God. But now they hide themselves because they are ashamed. God shows up and he starts walking in the garden, maybe where they've been a million times before. Who knows? But they're not there. And God starts a conversation. The sovereign, omnipotent creator of all things who spun the galaxies into existence knows the name of every star, knows exactly where Adam and Eve are, but he asks the question, where are you? And Adam, (laughs) he pushes back the bush a little bit, (laughs) and he says, we're naked and ashamed, so we've hidden from you. It says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? God begins this fascinating conversation with Adam and Eve. So God then asks Adam the question, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam's response. The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I, the tree and I ate. Who does Adam blame for this moment? He blames two people. He says, this woman gave me fruit. You gave me this woman. He blames God, and he blames Eve. Now, think about this for a second. That answer strikes us as ironic. It strikes us as funny sometimes because we are accustomed to this conversation. We're accustomed to blame shifting. We're accustomed to being thrown under the bus. We're accustomed to our teammates in work saying, that wasn't my responsibility, that's your responsibility. We're accustomed to this conversation inside of the home. That's not my fault. Did you do this? No, you did this. Johnny did this. Mary did this, right? We're constantly throwing each other under the bus. We're constantly blaming each other for our own sin. That had never happened before. This is how quickly sin strikes. This is how deep sin goes. It happens like that. Adam blames Eve, and he blames God for what has happened. God turns to Eve, and he says, Now tell me, Eve, what is it that you have done? And Eve says, Well, the serpent did it. (laughs) The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's more blame-shifting. So God begins to speak, and God begins to talk about what's going to happen now. Because of their act of rebellion in God, sin has entered into the world, and there are going to be consequences to this sin. So God begins to talk to them, and God tells Eve this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Before all of this happened, God had given them the garden. He said, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. Can you imagine human birth and the filling of the garden of Eden with human beings without blood, sweat, and tears, without pain and agony? That's how it was intended to happen. But now, to fulfill God's command to fill the earth, it is all of it going to happen now in pain, in blood, sweat, and tears. So that gets broken. And then he tells Eve this. He said, from here on out... The desires of your heart and mind are going to be at loggerheads with the desires of your husband's heart and mind. And he's going to rule over you, right? If we go back to that first question, first set of questions that we asked, what's broken? What is God fixing? Why does Jesus have to show up? As soon as we begin answering that question, this is what's broken. This is why it's broken. This is how deeply this crack in the foundation goes. I think we're beginning to see this is why God had to come. This is what God has to fix among us. Where there was supposed to be equality and mutuality inside of that husband and life relationship, now there's nothing but contention. And the desire to rule. It's broken now. God turns to Adam he talks to Adam, and he says this in Genesis three seventeen through 19. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam and Eve were given the garden. They were given work in the garden. But before the fall, the work was pure joy. The work was perfectly completed. Whatever you might call exertion or toil is not toil as we know it. It wasn't done in pain. It was all good and right and perfect. He says, but from here on out, every ounce of food you ever eat will be the result of toil and pain. You're going to work it, and you're going to till it, and it's going to be hard. The ground itself, creation itself, is broken because of your sin. God says. And he says, and then there's going to come a day, Adam, when you return to the dust. That wasn't supposed to be. That wasn't the original creation. You're going to return to the dust. You came from it, and you need to go back there. Husbands weren't supposed to die before their wives. Children weren't supposed to die before their parents. Who were the first parents who buried their child? Adam and Eve. They experienced fully and completely the consequence of sin and now human existence is marked by both spiritual and physical death this brokenness between our relationship between us and god and the relationship between you and me so the consequences of sin now they infiltrate everything about our existence there is no corner of the human heart where there is not sin There is no corner of the human existence that is not touched by sin. There is no corner of the physical universe that is not broken by our sin. This is how deep it goes. So what we see all of a sudden is that there is this deep, almost incomprehensible divide between what God created and his intentions for us in creation and what happens as a result of sin There's this gigantic divide between what God created and what happens now because of our sin. We've done a little bit of it already as we've sort of thought through Genesis 3 and what it means, but rehearsing the consequences of sin is a little bit like playing a game of what, can you imagine what it would be like if, if it wasn't like this anymore, if this was fixed, if this was taken care of, if this was no longer broken? Well, that's the story of Eden. And it turns out, guys, that the human heart is powerfully drawn to Eden. Something inside of every one of us is still rooted in Eden God's intention, God's creation. This concept of what's wrong should be put right. This idea of, I really want this relationship with God the way that He had it with Adam and Eve. I really want this relationship with my spouse and my family and my friends exactly the way that God wanted it to be. There's something inside of us that is still rooted in Eden. We can't get away from it. In fact, we are so drawn to it that the story of humanity can be told in terms, I think, of us trying to make our way back to Eden. If only we did this, if only we could take care of that, if only we could get rid of this group of people, then things are going to be better. We'll be back on our way to Eden. The promise of science and technology. We answer a few more questions, we fix a few more problems, and man, things are just going to get better and better and better. (laughs) Politics and economics. If we just elect the right people, make the wrong people shut up, Everybody does what they're supposed to do, and everything is gonna be fine, right? Man, we are deep in the middle of that. It's edenic. It's edenic. The human heart wants to fix what's wrong. If we do what's right with education, if we do what's right with the law, on and on it goes. But, guys, get this the fact that we cannot fix what needs to be fixed is proven by the fact that we have been trying to fix it. As long as we have been out of the garden, and it still is not fixed. Does that make sense? The human condition has been trying to fix what is wrong for as many thousands of years as we've been walking around trying to do stuff, and it's still not fixed. Now, get this, guys. When people cease believing in God, they don't suddenly believe that everything is fine they just now believe that they are the ones who can fix what's wrong. Does that make sense? When people stop believing in God, they no longer stop believing in the need for salvation. They just now think that we are the ones who can fix what is wrong. And we blow it every time. We attempt all kinds of things to get to our utopia, but we are sinners. And so everything that we do is riddled with the kind of sin that we watched creep into the garden with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. So no matter how good any one of us individually is, we're still a human being. No matter how organized we put ourselves together, national and international organizations, those organizations are full of what? Sinners. (laughs) No matter what we do, that's the case. But only the God who created us can save us. Only the God who had the power and love to bring all of this into being has the power and love to redeem it. He is the only one. We don't have what it takes to fix this. I discovered someone interesting a few weeks ago, and I've been reading a little bit of his stuff. His name is Charles Malik. He's a Lebanese-born philosopher and an academic. He was also involved in some really interesting international scale kinds of things. He's one of the co-authors of the U.N. Universal Declaration of Human Rights. He was also the president of the U.N. General Assembly in 1958. So Charles Malik was involved at the highest levels of human beings trying to do what? Trying to fix everything that's going wrong. Charles Malik was also an Orthodox Christian. Apparently, the only book he carried with him everywhere he went was his Bible. He wrote some really interesting things. So this guy, leading the U.N. and writing the Human Rights Declaration, says this. And if you think the hurt feelings of the world, whether in you personally or in any culture, brought up against the judgment of God are going to be soothed and placated... Through diplomacy or classical music or education or culture or humanism or philanthropy or technical assistance or just being nice and reserved and inoffensive or through the assurance that there's not going to be any nuclear war, then I am afraid you know neither yourself nor the world nor certainly the devil. Only the cross, which shocked and condemned the world, can reconcile it. The cross offends and scandalizes and the cross alone can touch our touchy souls. If you think all of that's going to fix what's really wrong, you don't understand what's wrong. You don't even understand yourself. It is only God. It is only Christ who can fix what's wrong. Back in Genesis chapter 3, God talks to Eve. says, here's the consequences. He talks to Adam. He says, here's the consequences. But the first person that God speaks to is the serpent, our enemy. He says, here's now the consequences of what has just happened. In Genesis 3, 14, and 15, it goes like this. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity You will be in conflict with. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, her offspring shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of the Messiah. Notice this, guys. This is a big deal. The first promise of the Messiah comes at the first step of sin. God says, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to fix this. And it happens on the day that sin enters the human condition. Think about it from the other direction. If God thought that we had a chance to fix what was wrong with our condition, God might have said, I'm going to give the human race a handful of thousand years to see if they might be able to sort of gather themselves together, put the, figure things out, and educate each other the right way, and put the system together. And then maybe He doesn't do that the day it happens, he says, I'm going to show back up and I'm going to fix this. The first promise of the Messiah comes at the first step of our sin. God knows we will not fix this on our own. We cannot fix this on our own. So God's Savior, the one who will save us from our sins, will bear our brokenness He will be the offspring of the woman. He will be born in blood, sweat, and tears now. His heel will be bruised. He will hang on a cross. But he is the one who will overcome our enemy. He will bruise the head of our enemy. He will rise again on the third day. He will ascend into heaven. He will give his church his Holy Spirit, and he is our soon and coming king. This is the promise of our Messiah. So God tells the serpent, Adam and Eve, that the offspring of the woman will accomplish all of this. But we know already that this can't be a normal child, riddled with the same sin that is in our hearts. It can't be the right politician or philosopher or queen or general or international assembly. It can't be any of those things. It has to be God himself. And sure enough, it turns out to be God in flesh. Back in Matthew 1 20 and 21, to remind ourselves of this part of the story Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In the end, it does us absolutely no good intellectually, morally, socially, salvifically. It does us no good to dismiss the story of Jesus Christ as just another mythology, as just another bedtime story that's good for our emotional anxieties. It doesn't do us any good to say this has nothing to do with anything. The birth of Jesus Christ answers our deepest needs. It addresses the work that we all need done. The work that we try so hard to accomplish but fail at every single time. I need my sins forgiven. You need my soul to be put right with God. And that's only going to happen through Jesus Christ. I need a Savior. You need a Savior. And His name is Jesus. He's the only one who will save his people from their sins. Let's pray.